News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Indeed we do, and tonight we have got a very special lineup for you. Brian Joffe, legendary entrepreneur here in South Africa, the chief executive of Long for Life, a company that he started a few years ago, 2017 listed it, hasn't gone the way that we all expected. We'll find out if Brian has got new plans now. He did appoint his old friends from Investec to have a look at the corporate structure. We'll find out if they've come up with any uh, ideas. There's been huge share buybacks in the past couple of years. That's coming up in really just a moment. After Brian, we'll be talking to Bernard. Bernard Mostert, it is, the former Tacky Town chief executive, the man who issued court papers yesterday to get Steinhoff put into liquidation. And then after the news and the market report at 6 o'clock, Chris Wheeler, the chief executive of PostNet, on that ridiculous, for many of us, idea that the post office is going to get a monopoly on delivery of all parcels of under one kilogram. Now, we know the post office is, well, uh, not exactly the hive of efficiency. How are they going to destroy a 20 billion rand uh, sector uh, on the grounds of old, old laws, which used to give the post office a monopoly? One only knows. But all of that coming up uh, with our uh, guest co-host tonight, the one, the only, Jean-Pierre Fister. Jean-Pierre, lovely having you on the show again. Uh, you, Brian Joffe, I, I know you've been a, a fund manager, money manager for some time. Uh, what's your, when, if I were to throw the name Brian Joffe at you, what comes back? Well, the first thing I think of is more Roffy for Joffe, more return on funds employed. Um, I think he's a bit of a legend in the industry, given where he took Bedvest from to where it ended before he parted ways with the company. And uh, and having a second life with Longful Life, so uh, we'll chat him a bit later. It's it's been difficult for I think most investment holding companies, uh, but Brian Joffe definitely has the skills to allocate capital very efficiently and very profitably, as he's done in the past uh, in in his career. That Rafi for Joffe, Brian. Good to have you on the program. Uh, it's something that we used to hear a lot about at Bidvest. Uh, motivate all of the divisions to to ensure that they got their return of fund employees employed above the the, the number that you set for them. However, when we look at uh, Long for Life, your new company, the Second Life, as uh, Jean Pierre said a moment ago, see in the past financial year, Rafi for Joffe went down from thirty eight percent to twenty seven percent. We've had COVID. That's probably a big part of it. Well, I mean, Rafi Vajafi is a very, very important yardstick for us managing our businesses. Um, and you're right that the calculation on if you use the whole year as, uh, as, as, as your number, of course, you're going to get to that number. But there are two component pieces to that. One is the actual funds employed themselves, which we did a brilliant, result, brilliant job on during this particular period. We generated about 200 million rands worth of cash, which is almost 10% of the market cap out of working capital. And then the other component piece, of course, is the trading profit, which was significantly down because of the first six months. So if you do the calculation based on the first half of the pre-COVID and the second half of this financial year, you're going to get a significantly different number. Yeah, I saw that the, your cash flow statement. It, it was, I couldn't actually believe it. I, I had to rub my eyes to see uh, how strong it was. How did you achieve that, Brian? Well, I mean, you could you could – I suppose come to the conclusion that we were very inefficient before that, and that's how we managed to do it. But please don't do that because that's not what happened. <laughs> um, I doubt uh, that I think a Joffe company would ever be inefficient. I think we know you better than that. But but the is there any tip you can pass on to the rest of us who are trying to get uh, cash flows a little bit more aggressive, uh, particularly in these difficult times? I think the one important factor in all in, in managing. Uh, funds employed is that it's very difficult to do it if you don't have the right mix and so it's it's one thing to be overstocked the other is to be overstocked with the wrong products and i think fortunately for us we've done a lot of work over the two or three years that we've owned the business in making sure that the funds that the stock mix was good uh, and then of course 
business, the nature of the business also changed a little bit, and that gave us the opportunity to reduce on a, on a sustainable basis the funds employed in that particular business. That's in the sport and recreational field. And we also had some big wins in, in the beverage business where we, got, we, got, we stepped up our efficiencies, which, which were some degree forced upon us by COVID. So, yeah. I think we did a good job in that space. When you listed in 2017, I recall you putting 100 million rand of your own money into the business, uh, and you've just, just broken square on that at the current share price. I suppose you could have done better by putting it in the bank. It, it, it couldn't have been what you anticipated back then. No, I'd look, um, no, Alex, I mean, of course, I think I'm probably into a little, a small profit at this point in time, but I haven't really looked for a long time. Um, the issue at the, at the end of the day for me, it's not a one-day game. And if I'm, if I was a seller, then of course the share price is important. But if I was a buyer and or a holder, the share prices are really, really less relevant. It's maybe better for the share price to be off. Um, but having said that, I think the real issue for, for me is that I think that we've done over the two, three years or three years, I'd, that we've had the business. I think we've done a particularly good job in managing the businesses. Each one of the businesses, in my view, are, are better now than they were when we acquired them. And I think that each one of them has got better growth potential now than when the, and the, than what they had at the time that we acquired them too. So from that point of view, we've done well. I think where we've fallen short, and it's really to some degree not necessarily in our hands, is that the share price doesn't reflect in any shape or form the underlying value of the business. And then you can see that we've got a business which has basically got 600 million rands worth of cash after buying back over the years a billion rands worth of shares. So they're 30% less shares in issue from the day that we started. And that, from the purpose, for the purpose of computing what value is being created, that's been significant for shareholders. But having said that, that that's, the exercise for us is not that. The exercise for us is how do we create a structure? so that we can continue to find some methodology to grow in going forward. You can't, I mean, 800 or 600 million is not really a significant amount of money for deal making, and especially if you're trading at a whatever, 40 or 50% discount to what we think the businesses are worth. So there's no, we, we can't use the equities, equity to, to do deals. It's too dilutive. And secondly, I think that we, in trying to do mergers, what we're finding is that there are people who have, who are, more interested in focused activities of, of, of what we've got rather than the general parcel. So we're looking at various of those alternatives and we're looking at seeing whether they are any better than what we've currently got. And who knows, at the end of the day, within the next two or three weeks, we'll basically know where we're going. Um, who knows, we'll either stay as we are or make some changes. Brian, if it makes you sleep any better, Alec goes to Sorbet Man every few weeks, so he really is contributing to the bottom line there. But secondly, why, why are you outsourcing your corporate finance work when you've probably got a better track record and expertise than the whole Investec team put together? Well, let me put it to you this way. If I was a doctor and I was a good doctor, I would still not do an, an, an examination of myself. I would go to somebody else because I think at some point in time you need to get some outside view of, of life as well. Um, I mean, I, I have certain preferences as to where I would like to go, but, of course, it's not only my decision. It, it, whatever happens at the end is going to be the decision of the shareholders. I mean, you know, I, we can only recommend if the shareholders want to stay as we are and pat on, then, of course, that's what's going to happen. If they want to make some changes, then, of course, that can happen too. And you say that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, Brian? That you'll get a you'll yeah, get well, a, a advice from Investec on on what to do. Well, the process is already underway, so we're we. It's not like we're starting from today. We started about two three weeks ago, and my my guesstimation is that in another two or three weeks we should know, in principle, where which way we want to go. I mean, obviously the implementation will take a lot longer than that, but if there is any implementation, and so yeah. What I don't like to do is, I think from a a public company perspective, I don't think it's good for us to be in a hiatus and not know where we're going. Jean-Pierre? Yes, uh, I think as Brian has correctly said, there shouldn't be too long at a hiatus. And when the cautionary came out a few weeks ago saying that Long for Life uh, approached Investec to do a review, there was concern that this might be the end of Long for Life because we've seen a lot of investment holding companies persistently trade the steep discount to intrinsic value. So it was a bit of a relief after this morning when Brian 
clarified that uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole long-for life is not going to exist anymore, but there's some corporate action that could be regarding some parts of it. So, uh, Brian, very glad to hear you'll still be continuing. Um, I know you're not a big fan of, of traveling, or at least not air travel, but you are traveling internationally these days. If you don't mind me asking, how are you getting around these days, Brian? Well, but as, you, as we talk to each other, I'm, to tell, I'm happy or sad to tell you I'm actually in Tel Aviv facing the bombs. So, so, but having said that, that's only not really serious. I think, I mean, I get around. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you get around. I, you know, I'm, fortunate, I'm one of the fortunate ones that have been vaccinated here. And so I get around. Just getting back to South Africa and another issue of COVID, I've noticed from my own golf club uh, that its golf has suddenly taken off. Uh, we've now got record number of new members. And whereas the golf club was struggling to get people on their books before COVID, now they've actually closed off membership. Now you own, uh, you're in that business in through Sportsman's Warehouse. And I see you've just bought direct leisure golf distributors. Are you seeing that as well, that that particular sport? I know you did mention in your results that home gyms are going up, and I suppose that tells us again we must buy a Peloton, and uh, that cycling is also booming. But golf? Well, golf, I think the name of leisure golf is a, is, is a bit misleading. It really doesn't do much golf. And, and golf is not a big sport amongst us. Um, <laughs> okay. But it's a, it, you know, they do, they do other things, basketball and uh, and cricket and the like. So, yeah. Um, look, I think from my perspective, you know, people are not moving around a lot. They're staying at home uh, and they have to entertain themselves in some form of, of leisure. And long and sportsmen's wares, outdoor wares are doing particularly well at the moment. As as is it to, to some degree sorbet. And as I try to say to people, Sorbet's still got constraints of capacity. It's not. It's not that COVID has gone away. We still have got social distancing as a factor, and we still have limited capacity relative to where we were in the where we were in the past. But so I think that the businesses that we have, all of them, in fact, are doing particularly well, and I think are in a space at the moment which is good, which is good for for the, for their businesses. Now, whether that's going to be the new norm going forward and whether life gets to normal, people start to travel again and people join gyms and, and the lifestyle goes back to where it was, I mean, that's possible. I don't think that's the real world. That's, that's, I think there's, there's some permanent change in some of the markets, and I think that some of the things that we've done, I think, have been particularly well, well thought out. We're looking at investment holding companies and discounts uh, a lot at the moment, and from your company's perspective when we see your net asset value of seven rand uh, your current share price of four rand sixty that's a discount of about a third where do you feel that long for life's discount should be or is that nav just so undervalued that it it could actually go much higher than uh, than the, the current discount of about a th- about 34 percent i worked out well, look, you know, one thing I've learned not to do is to deal with the share price. I mean, the share price is not determined by me, unfortunately. Otherwise, I would know what to do. Um, and the issue at the end of the day is it, it is what it is, and there is a discount to holding companies, whether one likes it or not. I think the real issue for us, or the challenge for us, is, is how do we find a structure that enables us to, to grow uh, with, with with some equity uh, issues along the way, because we can't issue the shares in a, in a transaction because of the significant discount to the underlying value, whether it's six rand, seven rand, eight rand, whatever it is, I don't know, but it is significant. So we need to try and find some kind of a methodology by which we can more f- f- clearly focus what we're doing so that we can maybe potentially merge with others on a relative basis in order to create some scale in order to be able to advance it to another level of growth. And that's what we're trying to, I'm trying to, to, to establish in our mind how, how one could get there. I'm not saying that it's possible to do because unfortunately, as you said right in the beginning, this is a small cap business and uh, it's not really the flavor of the month being a South African small cap business. 
But you've got 21 million shares. Colin Datner, your other executive, has got five and a half million shares. So shareholders know you heavily invested in the business as well. Brian, just to yeah. clo- close off with the... I've got 29 million shares. 29. Uh, well, you must update your annual report then. It says 20... 20, 20 uh, sorry. 21 million indirect. I didn't add the direct yeah. shares. Of course, your annual report uh, wouldn't uh, be wrong. More like my, my reading of it. Yeah, Alex, uh, Alex but, you never make a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, looking back uh, at Bidvest and in particular Comair, which was a company that I know you took quite an interest in from the Bidvest perspective, how are you seeing what, what happened there? Because it's Bidvest, I suppose, not so bad, but Comair, uh, to see that business collapse because of primarily because of COVID uh, would have made a lot of people sad, but you perhaps uh, one of the major ones. Look, it's always it's always sad to see something not not being successful. I mean, there were I presume. Look, I'm I'm not really all that close to it to be able to give a, an informed uh, view of what really did happen. But I think it was a combination of management, a combination of of, of COVID, a combination of the market itself. I mean, South Africa. Uh, you know, if you take for example SAA. I mean, SAA was the backbone against other, against how others measured themselves. And if an inefficient SAA and it's giving giving away tickets at half price doesn't augur well for the market as a whole. So I mean, at, at the end of the day, they both came to the same unfortunate end. Brian Joffe, the founder and chief executive of Long for Life. Jean-Pierre, before we pick up with Bernard Mostert on the uh, story that's been making headlines all over the place today, uh, would you be buying a Long for Life shares at the current price, around 450 460 Well, I have been a buyer the last month, Alex. A full disclosure, we do own Long for Life in the hedge funds under my management. Uh, we're optimistic about this value on lock that uh, Brian is embarking upon. Um, at the current price, you can, you can probably still buy some. It depends on the terms of the deal when it is finally announced. But as Brian says, that will come out in the next two to three weeks. So, yes, definitely at a discount to NAV, it looks reasonable. So, did you start buying when the announcement came out that Investec were looking? Correct, correct. That, in my mind, was a catalyst. And if you just looked at it, the price versus the NAV, any catalyst will bring you closer to NAV. So, it was sort of a no-brainer to say when they issued that cautionary that one should be buying Long for life shares, and the shares have done quite nicely since. And you were uh, paying a lot of attention this morning in the presentation, Justin? Yeah, Brian Joffe's 100th presentation to shareholders, the first I've ever attended. Um, so Were you impressed? Very impressed. It was an occasion. But Jean-Pierre, I'm just interested to hear. So you said when corporate action comes like this, uh, especially for these investment holding structures, we've seen a hell of a lot of corporate action with NASPIS and things have turned the other way. I understand that also could be part that the market has just gone sideways or backwards at a rate, so not the last few days. Um, like the... Yeah. Well, when when you get when you get corporate action, it doesn't always mean a positive thing, and I think that's really what uh, what we were talking mm-hmm. about a little earlier, in that the, uh, the the feedback we got from Pete Fulluden last night about Nasdaq was decidedly unpositive, and uh, we're seeing a lot of the analysts saying the same kind of thing. Yes, and uh, I was on the call with uh, Naspash management yesterday and I have a follow-up call with Naspash next week, Tuesday, because I also have some concerns, uh, and specifically regarding the fact that the ratio they're offering of 2.27 is not the right ratio. It doesn't really, uh, uh, it's not in my mind a fair ratio if you look at the underlying value of a Naspash shelter versus the underlying value that a process shelter holds. And uh, we'll need to wait and see if that gets adjusted or not. The problem you have is there's a control structure, so shareholders actually can't say anything about this. And this deal is not coming to uh, to be voted in front of NASPAS shareholders in any case. It's a deal that process shareholders will vote on. So it's a little bit of a hot potato, I think, currently for the NASPAS management. They probably expected a lot of positive reaction. And from process shareholders, I think it is positive. But from NASPAS shareholders, it's less so. So uh, uh, they're probably scratching their heads on the, on the back. Of and them. they're the ones who've got to tender the, the, the shares. You know, Justin, if only Jean-Pierre was in on that media <laughs> call, you would have made it a very different uh, conversation. Everybody was you know, quite upbeat and, uh, on, on the telecon yesterday. And uh, Bob van Dijk 
was extremely buoyant uh, when we asked them that the conditionality there was 45.4%, I think, they've got to get uh, of the NASPERS shares being tendered. There was no doubt in their minds that they were going to get it all. It, it wasn't a, a, because you could tender 100% if you wanted to, and it's a no-brainer. Well, I thought it was a no-brainer until I started listening to people who are far better informed than I am. And it just shows, Justin, you know, we, uh, we, we do doff our caps and defer to, <laughs> to, the, to the experts, Jean-Pierre. I think as a final point, Alec, I do expect that the deal will go through because the moment you set something like this up, you create effectively a game and you have arbitrage funds that would go out and buy NASPAS again on the announcement of a corporate action and they know they can swap their NASPAS shares for 2.27 process shares and that will probably lead to a high acceptance and that the deal is successful. I just think that after this deal, uh, NASPAS shareholders are in a less good position because the process management have indicated this is the last step and this is a sustainable solution. Well, I believe actually more should be done to unlock the discount. It's interesting. Uh, also in the conversation uh, with Bob van Dijk yesterday, he said they've got $5 billion to make sure that those ratios stay the way they want them to. Mm. Uh, we'll be picking up in just a moment with the Steinhoff story. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Bernard Mostert is the former chief executive of Techie Town. Uh, in the news this morning, after there were court papers lodged yesterday for the liquidation of Steinhoff, I, I read through the court papers. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, proud of me that I did that, Bernard, because it was quite a job. Uh, your affidavit is is lengthy, detailed, but quite explicit in that you guys believe you were conned and there's very little reason to believe otherwise, given that you sold Techie Town for Steinhoff shares just before Steinhoff uh, imploded. And you say that if there is the settlement that Steinhoff is trying to negotiate uh, in Europe, then you're going to be out of pocket. You've lost your business. You're going to be sitting with something worth about 5% of the true value. So I can understand why you're angry, but what are the chances of, of success here? Uh, look, I think that if we measured our lives and the actions that are that we know is going to be successful, probably we, we're not reaching our full potential, you know. So it's not about whether it is the right thing to do um, because it absolutely is the right thing to do, you know. And and it's easy to get lost in the wash of why we're doing it. But uh, the reality is that the proposal as it stands by Steinoff is um, not a good outcome for South Africa, it's not a good outcome for the vast majority of creditors of um, Steinoff. And we believe that there are certain fundamental flaws within the Steinoff settlement proposal that can be addressed quite sufficiently by um, South African authorities and a South African liquidator. So a little bit of a recap on the Techie Town story. Uh, you guys were approached by Steinhoff. You had a great business. They bought it for three and a quarter billion rand, uh, three and a quarter billion rand, not million. So it's it's big bucks. It was then you received Steinhoff shares in return for that three and a quarter billion rand. Why didn't you insist on getting cash? I think it's, it's very simple. Um, and the, the reason is, is as follows. So allow me to, to construct it for you very briefly. We sat on a very fast-growing, highly cash-generative, zero-debt business um, in Town. We believe at that stage that we understood that market particularly well. Uh, let's call it a third-party supplier market where you stock brands, etc. And um, we also understood what the likely market saturation is for the Town business. Uh, within the Steinhoff stable was a business called Pepco Speciality, comprised of Shoe City, Dunn's, Refinery, etc. And that, that business had struggled for many, many years. Um, you know, Shoe City moved to what was then Pepco in 1984, 
that business had lost a lot of money. There was about 500 business in that stable. So um, our founder, Bram von Hastian, discussed it with me and said, you know, we can turn this business around because we understand that space. We don't understand the white label space. We don't understand the pep store space and the Ackerman space, but we understand this space. And those 500 stores are not optimized. So we're going to put our business into Steinoff. It's then going to be merged with Pepco Speciality. We will take control of Pepco Speciality. We'll have 800 stores. And then we're going to do something that we've always said to one another. Let's prove to our stakeholders that we can deliver. And as a result, we agreed to a three-year lockup for the value that we supposedly got in return for our business. You know, So that is how our deal was constructed. Um, and frankly, if it was about money for, for us, um, and I don't say it flippantly, you know, I mean, surely we would have taken money at the time, but, but we took none. So I could see. I think, I think that kind of explains it a lot better. There was an opportunity for you to go and fix something that wasn't being well run. You knew how to do it. So it made a lot of sense. But on the other side, the paper that you were given as you explain in your affidavit in some detail, was inflated uh, beyond comprehension because of fraud. Yes, yeah, sure, by, by Steinhoff's own admission. You know, so Steinhoff, um, and I think that's, that's a big part of our distrust in the process as it stands right now, is that even after the events when Steinhoff vowed to clear the books and come out and, and – be sure that justice is brought to book. There's been a lot of events that's been contradictory. Um, at first, I said the statements will be the financial statements will be restated within six weeks. The PwC report then took almost 15 months. Then all of a sudden, it wasn't Steinoff that commissioned the PwC report. It was the attorneys in the contemplation of litigation. That report is now sealed. No one can get access to it. Um, you know, and, and in a liquidation where you have a Section 417 inquiry, uh, very much like the Zondo Commission, not to be grandiose, somebody can really get to the bottom of what happened here and critically also ensure that the relevant prosecution happens. So if we had a Zondo Commission on Steinhoff, which probably would be a good idea, thinking, thinking about the hundreds of billions of rands that have been lost by uh, retirees in South Africa, they could force that PWC report into the open and it could make a huge difference to understanding exactly what's going on. From your perspective, though, given that you can't get your hands on that report, are, are you then hoping to force that issue when you go to court? Well, there's a few other people that have, that have tried to force that issue, and they've been unsuccessful. You know? and, and the most ironic of all of them is that Marcus Uesta is suing for that report, and they're denying him access to it, and arguably... You know, if he's going to have a, a, a chance to defend himself and not just be guilty in the in the in the public court um, or the court of public opinion, then he must have access to it to defend himself. So, we believe that that report needs to come out, and critically, we believe that no settlement of any kind can be made until we actually understood what happened. Because as we sit right now, we sit with qualified financial statements that Mazars is not happy to give an unordered, uh, unqualified report. The shareholders are rejecting the statements and we are no closer to actually understanding what happened and no one has been prosecuted. Can you stop the settlement deal of Steinhoff going ahead? Listen, I think to some degree our action is a, is a step to make sure that we've put a stake in the ground that we can continue with our litigation. Because what we really want is we want our day in court. And if you work in very fine detail through the legalese of the settlement proposal, it says inter alia that if you accept the settlement, you forego any right to litigation against Steinoff and any Steinoff group company going forward. Now, our case is against Steinoff, and against Pepco, who was a 100% subsidiary of Steinhoff on the day that they got Tegitown, and we have successfully joined them in our restitution case. So do we want to simply put a spanner in the works? No. We 
want to march towards our day in court. And I think if we have our day in court, it will be a better outcome for a few other for a few other claimants and um, and also at least address this stain, no pun intended, that's sitting on corporate South Africa. I'm a little bemused by the comment you made a moment ago about Marcus Euster defending himself by getting hold of the report. Is the evidence in your mind not overwhelming that there was wide-scale fraud here? It seems so, right? But we don't know because the report sits behind a, a blanket of um, that is protected by Steinhoff. The only people that can enable the effective prosecution of whomever was responsible for this, and they've already identified Marcus as one of those individuals, is in the hands of Steinhoff. And it could come out through a Section 417 inquiry. But I don't think any of us on this call or anyone like to listen would ever want to be in a forum where you're accused of something and you can't defend yourself. But it's, it seems, uh, well, it's pretty well known from the German authorities and everybody else that there was a crooked audit firm in Germany that was creating all these fictitious invoices. And that's why I don't understand why the PwC report is going to perhaps contravene that, do you think? I think the PwC report might show us a lot of more things that we don't know. Um, So I'm very interested in that. So I'm not in any way suggesting that there wasn't fraud. Certainly there was fraud. The company has already admitted it. The company has identified at least six or seven individuals that that participated in that, and, and we almost had a full arch. You know, we had four out of the seven that was involved in our transaction. Um, so it is a, you know, but it is a process, and, and I think that, you know, it stands to reason that it must be heard. And if you look at the settlement proposal as it stands right now, I genuinely fear that there ultimately may be no prosecution in South Africa at all. Bernard, just to close off, because there's lots of talk uh, in the racing industry, which I think you know I, I have a deep uh, pedigree in, and so does your, your partner, your chairman, Bram van Hastien, that he, Bram and Marcus used to see each other regularly. In fact, that they spend at least one weekend a month together. That's the story that comes back to us within the racing industry, and I know there's a lot of um, gossip, but... You, if anybody knew whether this was the the reality, you would. Yes, yeah, Alex. So that is um, that's not untrue. Um, Bram does speak to Marcus. Um, I speak to Marcus. I speak to Ben Lacrancy from time to time, and I guess the next question is why. Um, and and you know, it's a sensitive point for me because it it goes to my Christian faith, and I know that people are very often criticized for that, but I'm not, and neither is Brahm, and neither is anyone in our team. And we look at that, and, and you say, if you had to be full of hatred and full of bitterness, where does it end? You know, do I now become bitter at the hedge funds who's going to recover 100 cents in the rand on debt that they bought for 10 cents? Am I bitter towards Marcus, etc.? Two days after the events, Marcus went to Brahm, he apologized to him. He looked him in the eye. He said, I've done something to you that I could arguably never reverse. I'm sorry, and you could never forgive me. And Brahm said, the book that I live by says 70 times 7, but it does not mean that I don't want justice, so I'm going to pursue my case. And, um, and that's the, the story. And that's how we feel about all individuals here. You know? So, um, again, don't want to be sound grandiose, but we – judge the act, not the human being. And Marcus did apologize to Brahm. He apologized to me. Um, he apologized to a few others within us. And, and so did others within the Stein of Stable. So it is a, it is at certain ways it's being used in a Bell Pottinger way as there must have been some form of collusion. But I must say there's no version in which you give your 3.2 billion rand business that makes 300 million rand cash a year 
away, get nothing in return, and then somehow, um, it, and then somehow you you benefit from it. That's it's laughable to think about it. Right. So yeah. um, we we find with the character point that we talk to everybody. We're, we're not against that. Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, suggesting that Christo Visa knew what was going on and then geared up to lose. 60 billion or whatever the number was. Jean-Pierre Fister, I'm sure you've, uh, before we let Bernard go, you've got a thought or two? Yes, it, it, this is a fascinating situation and a fascinating saga. <laughs> it's not going to end soon. But the one thing that I find interesting, uh, Bernard, is that Steinhoff, the new Steinhoff, today's Steinhoff, and the Steinhoff who shares you've got, is a Netherlands company. Uh, but it does have its head office in South Africa. It is tax domicile in South Africa. So it's interesting that your application is to a Netherlands company uh, to try and liquidate them in terms of South African uh, jurisdiction. Uh, can you maybe touch on that? Yes, yes, John. It's a, it's a very good question, and I must say I anticipated it. Um, so I want, to, I want to point out that the contract that we entered into in 2016 was the style of NV, and that contract stipulates quite clearly that our contract will be governed by South African law, the jurisdiction will be South Africa, and any arbitration or processes that follow from that will be heard in South Africa. So Steinhoff's um, contention that it's a Netherlands company, um, I think we lay it out pretty clear in our papers. You know, um, Louis de Prea lives in the Western Cape, Theo de Klerk lives in the Western Cape, both long-time Steinhoff men, in different forms. Um, Steinhoff registered addresses in Stellenbosch. Um, you know, all the books that have been written about the Stellenbosch mafia and Steinhoff, etc., doesn't refer to Steinhoff being Netherlands-based. You know, it refers to Steinhoff being a Stellenbosch company. So um, I guess the South African crime deserves a South African court, right? Um, Agreed. So, Agreed. And Steinhoff themselves. This is so, uh, sorry, that just to add, and that's why this is so, complex because if you think about Steinhoff, the majority of the debt today is offshore in Europe. As you say, they're not held by hedge funds and conservatorium and all these other groups. But the majority of the assets are still in South Africa. You have Pepco that is going to be listed in Poland if everything goes according to plan in the next month. But that is dwarfed by the debt. Well, the actual value is the Pepco business listed in South Africa. And that is why it's a difficult one. almost wants to unscramble the egg to go back to before Steinhoff externalized and became, in legal terms, a Netherlands company. But that's so difficult to unscramble an egg. Yeah, Jean-Pierre, if I can, if I can comment on that, you know, if you look at it, um, and I had, ironically, a, a conversation this afternoon with, with another litigant, and, and you look at the South African entrepreneurs that are now being um, crammed down, uh, Christo Visa, 18 cents in the rand, GT Ferreira, 29 cents in the rand, Brown Fraestian, 5 cents in the rand. All men who made their money in South Africa, invested industrially in South Africa, created a lot of jobs. Ram started with 20,000 rand, never borrowed a cent, built up a business of 3.2 billion rand and employed more than 3,500 people. He's getting five cents now, effectively being denied the opportunity to continue to reinvest in the country. Same for Christo. You know, I... At the age of 79 or 80, I feel very deeply for him because he perhaps doesn't have the timeline. I'm, I'm not criticizing him, but he doesn't have the timeline to do the recovery that we are pursuing. Um, GT's claim was an investment that he had made for his farm workers. They're losing 70 cents. Jaindra Naidu's claim, 50% owned by the PRC. Um, you know, is it fair that cr financial creditors who obtained the debt that they now hold, which was generated based on fraudulent assets, that they recover 100 cents in the rand plus 10% interest, which is kind of rich for Europe, um, if in some cases they paid as little as 10 cents on the coupon, you know. So, no, so that's, that's interesting. No, that's, that's perspective. And Steinhoff issued a statement today to say that they will be defending this vigorously, but it is a bunch of lawyers now running the place. So I guess one had to exp uh, understand that. Just before you go, Bernard, there is a question on our YouTube live chat from Andre Boer, who says, this is for JP, uh, John Pierre, actually. He says, I assume 
The esteemed Jean-Pierre Fester was not a fan of Steinhoff before all the bad news emerged. Okay, put him out of his misery. Tell him about your short position. Yes, no. Um, I mean, I, I looked at the books and we found the off-balance sheet entities um, via the equivalent of Cipro in uh, uh, Switzerland and Austria, which is the Campion group. And uh, because of that, we had concerns. We put those concerns to, to sign off management. We weren't uh, happy with the answers and we shorted the shares in advance of the big fall. So the timing of the fall came as a surprise to me personally. I thought it would take still a while. Um, but at the end of the day, we were very concerned about Steinhoff, and that's why we were short, and we made money for our investors by being short Steinhoff. Jean-Pierre Fester, who's our guest co-host tonight, and uh, Bernard Vaudenmastert, uh, re- uh, really good to be talking with you. Thanks for sharing as openly as you have this evening. And uh, now I guess it's time for us to catch up on our 6 o'clock news bulletin. And Justin, we're a little late for that, 10 minutes, but I think it was worth it. Nothing wrong with that, Alec. And uh, our editor at large, Jackie Cameron, has the flash briefing. South African-American biotech billionaire Patrick Soon-Shiong has committed an initial 3 billion rand to help build out South Africa's capabilities to produce COVID-19 vaccines. During an online World Health Organization meeting this week, Soon Xiong said his company would bring its technologies and expertise to South Africa to enable vaccine production capabilities. Soon Xiong is the inventor of Abraxane, a drug which is highly regarded for its efficacy in the treatment of breast cancer. He was born in Port Elizabeth and obtained his bachelor's degree in medicine from the University of Witwatersrand before moving to North America, where he has built multiple successful pharmaceutical and healthcare companies. South Africa's Department of Health says that while COVID-19 infections climbed 46% in the last week, the country has not yet reached its resurgence threshold. Cases are rising fastest in the Northern Cape and Gauteng. The South African Medical Research Council has produced a report into excess deaths over the past year, suggesting that more than 133,000 South Africans have died from COVID-19. This is far more than the official tally of nearly 55,000. South Africa's APSA expects a tenfold profit jump for the six months to June the 30th, it said, this week, citing cost controls and reduced bad debts. South Africa's biggest food producer, Tiger Brands, also expects half-year profits to rise by up to 55% versus a year earlier. Facebook has been called to appear before South Africa's parliament this month to explain what it is doing about harmful misinformation spreading on its platform. Opposition MP Pumzile Van Dam says Facebook will appear before the Communications and Digital Technologies Committee on the 25th of May as the country inches towards the 2021 local government election. That was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, do visit biznewsradio.com. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Here's Justin. The JSE All Share Index was a bloodbath today, close to 2% lower at 66,200. NASPIS was down 3.5% to just over 3,000 rand a share. The share is now down on a rolling 12-month basis. Tiger Brands up 4.5% to 216 rand on the back of an upbeat trading statement. And Sabanya Stillwater down 3% to 63 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was slightly weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand and 10 cents to the dollar. 19 rand and 80 cents to the pound and 17 rand and 2 cents to the euro. Gold is steady at $1,824 an ounce. Brent crude is low at $67.80 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 700,000 rand of Bitcoin. And this thought leadership feature was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs match life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Yeah, Justin, it's hard to find something that went up today. As you mentioned, Tiger Brands was, uh, well, that's on a trading statement. Diskim Motors, Barlow World, outside of that, you struggling. On the other hand, just the red ink is everywhere. I, I do see the U.S. markets are in the green currently, so hopefully it'll be a bit of an uptick tomorrow morning. Uh, Jean-Pierre, we don't have to worry too much. If there's going to be an uptick uh, in the U.S., it should come through to us? Yes, it it should, uh, depending on the currency, Alec. I mean, the currency has also been a bit of a curveball the last uh, week or two for strengthening a lot 
and then in the last two days weakening a lot again. So as always, the shorter movements of markets are keeping one on your toes. Well, uh, we will be talking about something else that's kind of confusing everybody. But first, at BrightRock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And if the South African post office has its way, uh, something big is going to be changing for us. A 20 billion rand industry is going to go, well, I guess implode because the post office wants to stop anybody else delivering packages under one kilogram in size. Chris Wheeler is the chief executive of PostNet. Chris, this isn't something new. It's been going on for quite some time. How does the law stand? Before we, we, we get into the emotional side, which I'm sure is very, for, very emotional for you, but how does the law stand on this whole parcel, one kilogram parcel story? Well, good evening, Alec, uh, Justin, Jean-Pierre. I think, Alec, uh, thanks for the opportunity. I think first things first, um, yeah, before we get into the emotional side, um, please remember I'm not the lawyer. I'm not the lawyer, but uh, it's quite simple. Uh, PostNet is an organisation, and thankfully the South African Express Parcel Association are all of the same opinion. Um, we do not believe, when we read and understand the Postal Act, that we have the same understanding as what ICASA and SAPO do. So our understanding and interpretation of the Act is very different to what they believe the Act reads. And your understanding? Our understanding is, from a business model point of view, the Postal Act, which was written many, many years ago, is related to postal services. We offer a courier service. We don't offer a postal service. A courier service is very simple. It's time-sensitive. You've got track and trace. We, 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 we're all about efficiency and being fast. If you look at a postal service, which is a stamp, which is an envelope, is two totally different products. So our understanding and interpretation of the Postal Act is very different. How big is the courier uh, service for parcels or packages under a kilogram? It's a substantial amount of, of, of volume across the whole industry. Uh, I think you made a statement there that the industry is worth $20 billion. Um, a fair size amount of that business is obviously items that weigh under a kilo. And, and I think that's a big point to remember, Alec. It's just not PostNet. And if I do go into a bit of history, um, our business we started in 1994. So we've been trading for 27 years. We've got 412 retail outlets, all individually owned and operated. There's many other businesses, good businesses that do exactly the same as PostNet. The the courier industry is a is a large business in South Africa. We're talking a twenty billion rand industry. So it's a it's a fair amount of parcels, I'm sure. And it doesn't only affect our business, it's across a whole host of other businesses, whether it's education, whether it's e commerce, whether it's the person, the man in the street that deserves choice sending a parcel or going on holiday and leaving a set of keys and a jacket and they want to send it back home. It's, it's all about logistics. It's all about convenience. It's all about courier. So, yeah, the Postal Act, we don't believe in the interpretation of the Postal Act and that's why, unfortunately, we're in court to and protect when, our livelihoods. When does the court case happen, given that this does go back to, well, 2018 initially? Uh, is this the final, final court case, or or when is it? And uh, should you lose, what would you do? Alec, I, I must be careful because I, I, I run PostNet. I'm not the legal team. <laughs> okay. um, let me let me update all the viewers. Uh, we started in 1994, and we've had a very strong, good working relationship with the South African Post Office in the early days. We've always engaged with them. We've always spoken about collaboration. Let's work together. Uh, the legal issues with the South African Post Office started in 1997, so that's quite a few years ago. And then what normally happens, business things change, I fully understand that, they, 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 they always 
You know, got to got to improve. Change, I fully understand that. They, they 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 change, I
understand that they change I fully 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 
understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that they change I fully understand that